Don't mention me about your religion. Show me your heart. If you have a heart of an innocent child, you have the best religion. Even if you are a non-believer, you can still embrace the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 204 of Embrace the Void, where the fall semester is no longer a tiny dot on a distant horizon. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are talking non-believers and marginalization. So let's break out the larger scales. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Will Gervais, an assistant professor of social psychology and senior lecturer at the Center for Culture and Evolution at Brunel University in London. Will, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello to the void. Uh, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoy your work, and I'm excited to dive into it a little bit. I know we have you know, a lot of um, secular listeners in our audience, so I think they will find uh, your work interesting as well. So before we dive into that, do you want to do a little bit of like telling folks what brought you to social psychology, broadly speaking, and evolutionary psych, and specifically the study of religious belief and disbelief? Yeah, I can give you a bit of my background. Um, it's interesting. So I have my PhD was in social psychology from the University of British Columbia. Um, and then I was a professor at the University of Kentucky, again, in social psychology. So across that, I've got like 13 years as a nominal social psychologist, but I've never particularly like strongly identified as a social psychologist, uh, in part just because I come from a weird hybrid interdisciplinary background. Um, mm -hmm. So in college, I kind of hopped between majors a few times. Um, I was in environmental sciences for a while, and then I thought I'd be pre-med, and then I took like one anatomy class and hated it, figured that was mm -hmm. not a good call. Um, but sometime around this time, I started reading just kind of some pop evolutionary biology. So Dawkins, Selfish Gene, a bunch of stuff by Stephen Jay Gould. And mm -hmm. I got really interested in evolutionary biology. And I took some animal behavior classes in biology uh, at the University of Denver, which is where I was doing my undergrad. And that was really interesting that there there wasn't there weren't a ton of classes necessarily in what I was interested in. Mm -hmm. And so... I eventually ended up, I took like a semester off. I wasn't, I basically just took a leave, did a bunch of reading, did some traveling. And I ended up coming out of that deciding, all right, I'm going to go into psychology as my major, but keep this kind of heavy uh, interest in evolutionary biology. So I ended mm -hmm. up 
uh, doing psychology with minors in biology and anthropology and had read a bit of kind of pop evolutionary psychology books and thought, oh, that that sounds like kind of a good fit for my interest. So I'm interested in people and how they act, but I definitely wanted to have this evolutionary focus. Meanwhile, so there was kind of my academic interests, uh, totally separate from the academic stuff. I was interested in religion, kind of had been from a young age. I grew up not especially religious, like Every now and then my parents would put us in Sunday school for like a couple of weeks and it didn't really stick for my brother and I. So Mm-mm. I was kind of like a lazy half-assed atheist, um, but really interested in religion. So I'd read on mm-hmm. world religions. I took some kind of philosophy and philosophy of religion classes, but I didn't connect the dots that I could do the psychology stuff on the religion stuff. So in my head, these were like two totally different interests. And then I started thinking, all right, well, I'll apply to graduate school. I thought I'd look for places uh, where I could go into psychology, but places that would have uh, kind of an evolutionary psychology emphasis. Mm -hmm. Um, And applied to a couple of different places. And eventually I chose the University of British Columbia, which has this great group of evolutionary psychologists and cultural psychologists. And we're they were all kind of lumped together in the social and personality psychology area. But if you chatted with them, like some of them would strongly identify as a social psychologist. Others would be like, well, I'm barely even a psychologist. Like Joe Henrik was there for a while and fitting with that. And he'd always kind of bristle uh, being lumped in with the psychologist because, you know, he comes from more of an anthropology background. Um, so yeah, I went there to study with the good evolutionary and cultural psychology folks. And I took some social psychology classes along the way, but mostly we had this cool interdisciplinary culture and evolution group. And as I was applying there, I realized that my eventual mentor at UBC, Ara Noren Zion, had started doing some work applying kind of evolutionary and cultural psychology to religion. Uh, and that's when, for me, it kind of clicked. And I thought, oh, wait, like I can take this stuff I'm interested in and actually make that what I study uh, in graduate school. Uh, so that's yeah. kind of the confluence of my interests in evolutionary psychology and cultural processes and religion. It just kind of came about that I was applying somewhere where he had started doing that work. Uh, so it seemed like a perfect fit for me. Yeah, that makes sense. And it, uh, I mean, I think it's fair to say the intersection of evolutionary psych and religious belief is is sort of a hot issue now. It probably was made, you know, popularized in a lot of ways by, like you're saying, the sort of Dawkins um, kind of literature. I'm curious, you now doing this work professionally versus you sort of reading stuff like Dawkins back in the day, Do you, how do you feel like your perspective on especially evolutionary psych around religion has shifted? Or do you feel like you're still kind of in a similar place with it as you were back then? Yeah, it's interesting. Back when, say, Dawkins started really writing about religion, like 2006, kind of God delusion era, that was my first or second year of graduate school. And I got to say, at the time, I was like a soft target for the new atheists. So they like Uh talking about rah-rah science and Uh, They were pretty friendly and favorable towards evolutionary psychology. And here they were writing books about atheism. And at the time I was reading their books, I'd listened to a bunch of the sort of like pro-atheisty podcasts and that. So at first I was fully on board. I thought, oh, this is Mm -hmm. great. They're using science to show how atheism can work and what's wrong with religion. 
And pretty rapidly, actually, as I started actually doing research on religion, mm-hmm. I found myself more and more distant from the new atheist perspective. Mm-hmm. Because although they'll praise science a lot, they don't really interact with the most relevant science on uh, how religion works. What do you consider the most relevant science here? Do you mean like social analysis or like anthropology or like what do you feel like they're leaving out of their picture? Um, a lot of their picture, it's, uh, what's the best way to put this? So there's been a lot of really good work kind of at this confluence of evolutionary psychology, cultural psychology, anthropology of these fields trying to figure out what makes religion tick and that was Mm -hmm. really starting to pick up in the early 2000s and really took off kind of 2005 to 2015 it seemed like all of a sudden we had a lot of good interdisciplinary work looking at the evolutionary and cognitive foundations of religion Um, and this work the new atheists spend a lot of time talking about science and they talk a lot about religion They don't connect Mm -hmm. the dots and talk about the good science that's being done about religion. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, they'll have some claims in there that, I mean, Dawkins wrote God Delusion in 2006, and I was just revisiting it where he talks about his theory of where religion comes from, for instance. He Mm -hmm. says, well, I think our species, there's a lot of threats in the world, so we have to learn from each other. So maybe kids just evolve to believe whatever mom and dad tell them. Um, Uh and so he thinks that's the root of religion and then you bundle in memes and how memes can be parasitic on people. So that's his 2006 version. Uh, Uh he wrote a more recent book, Outgrowing God came out just within the last year. And again, he has the same basic story. He doesn't bring out memes as much, but he says, I think that humans evolve just so that kids believe whatever mom and dad tell them. Uh Um, it turns out that had he say, talked to a developmental psychologist who study how kids learn stuff. Uh They would have, like, if they were polite, they would have managed to not laugh in his face. Uh, Mm -hmm. But we know that's not how kids work. Kids don't just believe whatever mom and dad tell them. Uh, They're not broad spectrum credulous of what authority figures do. It turns out that kids are pretty savvy about who they Mm -hmm. learn from under which conditions. Um, So there's kind of strike one from developmental psychologists on that theory of religion. You could also look to work on cultural evolution. So this is a good body of theory that has been kind of accreting since the mm-hmm. 70s, 80s. Seminal work is Boyd and Richardson's Culture and the Evolutionary Process, which was published in 1985, where basically they take our evolutionary models of how just basically how evolution works by a natural mm-hmm. selection and adapt it to cultural rather than genetic transmission. And so we have a bunch of good mathematical models of cultural evolutionary processes. Um, this theory, it's, you know, been solidifying over the years. Well, if you talk to somebody from a cultural evolution uh, perspective and say, what do you think about the possibility that humans evolved to just believe whatever their parents tell them? They'd say, no, 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 that's that's the equivalent of playing like all cooperate in a prisoner's dilemma. Uh, this makes uh-huh. you a sucker who people can take advantage of. So if you just believe whatever anybody tells you, you can be exploited across the board. So we probably evolved some systems for just kind of epistemic vigilance where we need to make mm-hmm. sure that we're trusting the right people. Um, so here's two kind of separate domains of science where they would say, no, we did not evolve just to believe whatever mom and dad said. Now, for 15 years now, Dawkins has been making that kind of his central claim about why we have religion. 
and it doesn't mm-hmm. pass the smell test. Um, right. So that's just kind of one example. Um, there's also example. examples of nice and concrete. Yeah, yeah it's nice and concrete. Um, there's other ones though with uh, how they talk about, say, the relationship between religion and violence. They have this really simplistic notion that well. Why we have suicide terrorism is terrorists are expecting some sort of heavenly reward, so they'll happily sacrifice themselves. And it sounds intuitively plausible, uh, but it turns out mm. people who have done, like Scott Atrin is one name, he's done field work talking to, say, failed suicide bombers, and they don't bring up those kinds of kind of supernatural rewards. Uh, mm. They view themselves as combatants in a battle between their group of humans and another group of humans, and they're willing to sacrifice themselves for their group. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of that supernatural calculus just doesn't seem to play a major role. So again, you have the new atheists consistently making claims about this link between religion uh, and violence that doesn't mm-hmm. kind of pass muster when you talk to the science actual, uh, scientists actually doing that work. Um, it's sort of, yeah, you, I mean, I think it makes sense as a reactionary argument, right, where they're going up against religious people who will frequently argue, as we're, as we're going to talk about here, that, like, religion consistently produces more moral behavior, and so they feel the need to to press the counterpoint that religion consistently produces, rather than, like, we, as we might argue, um, you know, religion just produces a, a weird mix of behaviors, but nothing consistently, um, potentially. But So, okay, I want to I wanna dive in a little bit here, because you... Um, you 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 laid out sort of their version of how religion arises, and you you seem to be not in favor of that one uh, for scientific reasons. So I'm curious, you know, at this point in your career, and I understand this sort of thing can change over time. Are you more sympathetic to any particular account of how religion, how we come to be a religious species in this way? Um. Yeah. Sure. And my views have changed a a bit over time as well, but I think. We've got a pretty good story coming together um, for explaining how our species came to be overwhelmingly religious. Um, mm-hmm. And I think what's helpful here is kind of breaking down the question of why did our, how did we come to be a religious species into kind of smaller sub questions. And mm-hmm. I think we get kind of a good overall answer, a tentative one at least by basically lumping some answers from evolutionary psychology, some in from cultural evolution, um, we can talk to the developmental psychologists if we want to figure out about how kids work. But uh, for like a super short version of what I think is a good kind of viable theory of how all this stuff works, um, I think we need to, on the one hand, explain how is it that we're able to kind of find it so easy to just imagine supernatural agents. So things mm-hmm. like gods, ancestor spirits and that. Um, and beyond just being able to imagine them, we need to explain how we come to believe in some of them, but not others. And then we want to figure out how come the world today looks the way it does in terms of which religions have been successful. Mm -hmm. Um, So if we kind of break it into those three chunks, uh, I think we can make a pretty compelling case that the capacity to just imagine things like gods and spirits, um, that's basically an evolutionary byproduct of kind of cognitive adaptations we have for other stuff. For instance, just social interactions. Um, Mm -hmm. We have to be able to figure out what's going on in other people's heads when we're talking to them or interacting with them. Uh, So we have things like theory of mind where I can figure Mm -hmm. out what what you're thinking. Uh, And I can think about what you're thinking about what that person's thinking. So it's just a way for us to kind of like intuitive mind reading, I guess, is what I think of it as. 
Um, and we just extend that that application of intentionality out to everything in the universe as a way to try to engage with everything in the universe. Yeah, it could be like that. Um, so it could be that, you know, if I'm good at kind of thinking about intentionality in general or your mental states, that could lead to something like mind-body dualism where, okay, mm -hmm. now if I think that my body and my mind are different and your body and your mind are different, then maybe it's a small step for me to think about just mental things. So stuff with mm -hmm. mental states, but no body. Okay, well, now that's some sort of an ancestor spirit. Um, so I think it's a relatively small step to go from some sort of theory of mind to some sort of ability to think about disembodied supernatural agents. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't necessarily believe in those. So like, if I think of supernatural agents that I could imagine, uh, sure, I've got, you know, God or Yahweh. I can also imagine like Count Chocula or Harry uh -huh. Potter. Um, mm -hmm. Now, nobody believes in Count Chocula or Harry Potter. So we need some sort of a mechanism. I'm not for sure you necessarily out. want to claim nobody given the internet I mean, exists, but I understand nobody right, in my the qualified nobody, right? Yeah. Nobody wink. Um, mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so we need some sorts of mechanisms for, well, how is it that people come to believe in some gods and not others? Um, mm. And so I think, you know, we've, we found one tentative answer for imagining supernatural agents as rooted in theory of mind. And I think our mechanism for deciding what gods to believe in is going to come to, uh, it's going to boil down to a lot of the processes that just shape how we learn cultural information in general. Mm -hmm. um, so the cultural evolution folks have modeled a bunch of kind of specific learning strategies that we use to absorb culture. So we're not just, totally sponges we pick up whatever's around us instead it seems like we've evolved to use specific strategies to pick up useful information from others in our environment mm -hmm. um so just to illustrate a couple of different uh ways this might work imagine you get plopped down in some novel environment you've never been there you're in the brazilian rainforest um okay and you need to figure out how to survive uh, so you could just kind of do trial and error, figuring out what to eat or uh, how to get a, how to get by. You could rely on kind of your own personal hunches um, mm -hmm. and you'd probably like die pretty quickly. Uh, a lot of European explorers visiting new places <laughs> basically did this a lot. They'd bring just their own cultural toolkit and not try to learn from anyone there. And they'd right. like rapidly run out of supplies and then die of malnourishment. Uh, so mm -hmm. that's a bad strategy. A better strategy is you might spot other people in this environment and just try to copy what they're doing uh so mm -hmm. if we're looking at food if you look and you see a lot of people are eating one particular kind of fish well mm -hmm. you should kind of copy that you're seeing a lot of people eating something and not dying well that's good evidence that that's safe to eat so you could right. have kind of conformist learning where you copy what a lot of people are doing uh you could have prestige biased strategies where now i'm going to try to copy the most successful people Mm -hmm. um, because then I'll figure out what makes them successful. I'll be successful too. Um, so those are just examples of the specific learning strategies. Mm -hmm. um, but looping back to earlier, talking about how we need some epistemic vigilance. Um, so we want to only come to uh, imitate or copy the beliefs of people who sincerely hold those beliefs. So you don't want somebody to say like, oh, here, eat this, this mushroom. It's delicious and nutritious but maybe they're trying mm -hmm. to poison me, right? So I need some way to right. see if they actually believe that that's delicious and nutritious. And the key is if they actually take a bite of it, mm -hmm. okay, now I have some evidence that they actually think it's delicious and nutritious. 
Um, so this is one of Joe Henrik's papers. He called these credibility enhancing displays. Basically, mm-hmm. it's behavior that would be costly if somebody didn't believe what they say. Um, and we can rely on these credibility enhancing displays as really good cues of stuff we should actually believe in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and getting back to religion, yeah. people tend to engage in costly religious rituals to prove their faith. As a learner, this tells me like these people sincerely believe in these gods, but not those spirits. Um, so mm-hmm. that can help explain why if I just kind of take all the, the supernatural agents I could imagine and then look to others in my environment uh, and see what they're kind of giving off credible cues that they believe in these gods, I'm probably more likely to believe in those same gods. Mm-hmm. And then maybe there's some adaptation as a community to everyone, you know, similar to like if you were doing those kinds of credibility enhancers to prove that you, you know, value your community very highly, right? Re- doing it in this kind of religiously organized way could be a really effective way to sort of convey that information. And since you mentioned um, uh, Henrik, I think I- I've-, I've previously on the show plugged his book, The Secret of Our Success. And we were talking about it some before the show. And in there, I think he does a really great job laying out what you were just describing in terms of the um you know what are successful models for surviving in different environments um and a lot of it is like you need to pay attention to the people who actually live there rather than just like trying to assert some sort of technical dominance over the environment based on your prior experiences um so this is i think all really valuable because you know one thing i see happen a lot when we talk about you know th- theories of of how of religion and what it is um actually first before i even say that part right let me just back up a little bit here do you want to try to define religion or would you just rather not like i know that's a cruel um, question to ask generally speaking but what do you think uh i think it's useful trying to come up with kind of a rough operational definition of mm-hmm. religion just in order to study it um, mm-hmm. But I think it's also possible to just end up kind of spinning your wheels endlessly of trying to get a really precise definition. Uh, mm-hmm. What I find in my research sometimes is instead of trying to define religion writ large, I'll pick some aspect of religion that I want to investigate. So I'll say like, all right, I'm going to look at what types of variables predict whether or not somebody says they believe in God. If I just ask mm-hmm. them, like, do you believe in God? Yes, no question. I'm predicting who says no on that. Now that's belief in God as measured on kind of a crappy binary measure like that. That's one small aspect of religion, but it's like the one I can do in a single study. So I'll focus on that and kind of don't stress too much on um, whether I'm getting a nice all encompassing definition of religion. And that's good enough for kind of life within one study. Um, But myself and other researchers, we need to, I think, be better at reminding ourselves that that's what we're doing in every study is we're picking a convenient little definition that'll Mm -hmm. be easily understandable to our participants. And we lose a lot of complexity along the way, but that's kind of a necessary sacrifice we have to make. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's fair to say that, like, we could at least you know, for the sake of argument, agree on some like straightforward cases of religion, like Christianity's a religion or something, and then like acknowledge that there are going to be some edge cases about things that aren't religions, and then there's going to be some debate about which things are and aren't religions, um, but that we can have a conversation about these patterns of behavior without coming to that essentialist definition first. 
Yeah, definitely. I think we can have a lot of productive conversation and saying like a lot of things clearly seem like they'd fit our kind of folk definition of mm-hmm. uh, religions, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, um, mm-hmm. Buddhism, all the big ones. And then we will have these edge cases and that's where things can get really interesting. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the attempts to define religion end up stumbling. Mm-hmm. Um, so at least within psychology, <clears throat> I can never remember they had an acronym. It's like the four C's communion. Mm-hmm. Uh, crap. This is my advisor's paper. Now I can't remember their things. Oh, but they had this no. big BBS paper, but basically they try to break it down into religion. You have a community aspect. Uh, you mm-hmm. have belief in counterintuitive, uh, counterintuitive supernatural agents. Um, and uh, I forget their specific ones, but yeah, they attempted this kind of like, here's four classic things. Um, mm-hmm. And then people can argue, does this count as a religion based on that? I remember uh, in one class I was TAing for Ara in a class on religion. And students had to do a presentation about something about religion at the end. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of the presentations, they did a great one um, where they were trying to make a case that uh, football or soccer in the U.S. sense, football fandom could count as a religion where people have this deep kind of in-group, out-group commitment to their own football club. Um, Mm -hmm. And they might, you know imbue their stars with supernatural properties of, you know, this person's a big game clutch scorer. And so that one could point to like their, their behaviors as like, um, you know, I'm not going to change my clothes or something because my team will win, won't won't win or something like that as being belief in in supernatural elements of, of luck and fate or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mm -hmm. So that one I thought was a really cool presentation because uh, the student took something that I think for most of us, including myself, the initial intuition is like, nah, that's not really going to count as a religion. Um, mm-hmm. But she went through sort of the definition offered in this one fairly prominent paper, and it ticked most of the boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned the supernatural element. Do you think that it, for something to be religious, it has to there has to be that supernatural element? Because I think this is um like something that people sometimes debate. Um, yeah, this one has been debated both ways. Um, I would tend to say if I'm going to call something religious, it probably has supernatural elements. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, I could certainly imagine, I don't think the notion of there being a fully secular thing that checks most of our boxes of what makes religions tick. I think that's totally possible. Um, Mm -hmm. In principle, in practice, it certainly seems like the things that end up fitting religion really well will have that supernatural component. Um, perhaps for all sorts of cool cultural evolutionary reasons. There might be reasons why the things that persist over time and seem like religions have had the supernatural component like that, that might've actually helped galvanize those groups. Um, and, and while we're on this like edge cases question, I just, I'm curious to ask your thoughts. You know, I spend a lot of time arguing about the culture war stuff. And one of the big debates right now is whether wokeness counts as a religion or not. Um, so I'm curious about what you see as the relationship between wokeness and religiosity. Do you think it's a religion? Do you think some people practice it as a religion or that it has some religious like behaviors? And do you think you believe the idea that like it's filling a hole in secular identity that was left by the absence of religion? which is a claim that I think some folks make. Yeah. I mean, I haven't dug into this stuff too much. I remember there is 
this mm-hmm. kind of like Quillette or Medium or something some years back. Some people wrote, oh, wokeness is this new religion. And my first thought skimming through it is like, these people don't know what they're talking about with regards <laughs> to religion, um, mm-hmm. was my initial hunch. Um, so I think essentially what it boils down to me is they see something that looks like it has kind of a coalitional aspect where you have the wokes and then people who are not wokes. Mm-hmm. And so they've seen a deep coalitional commitment mm-hmm. and just started calling it religion, uh, mm-hmm. not because it bears any kind of deep structural similarities to religion. Um, and who knows why it calling it a religion too, I feel like at least in some of these culture war things like if you can call something a religion you're denigrating it you're saying it's stupid you're saying it's irrational um so i think it could be a compelling rhetorical ploy but i don't think it has much traction in terms of you know wokeness being a religion i think it's a set Mm -hmm. of ideologies that tend to cleave across coalitional lines um Mm -hmm. and it, Mm -hmm. it might be convenient to talk about that as a religion in a rhetorical sense but i don't think it tracks really i don't think it would buy you much empirically i guess to mm-hmm. classify wokeness as a religion as opposed to just like a group-based ideology of which we have plenty and most of them aren't particularly religious right except for um, football um right right, right. now there's so the that, second question yeah. of whether wokeness could fulfill some void left in people in more secular places where they aren't religious mm-hmm. i think that's a totally separate question it's entirely plausible that in the if people no longer have kind of religion as an organizing structure in their lives that maybe they would turn to something else and another group-based ideology could do that uh so i find the idea that for some people wokeness could serve some of the same purposes that religion is served i think that's a lot more plausible than the secondary leap to then saying aha wokeness is a religion um, mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Maybe the painting um, the... wokeness as a religion is kind of a side effect of some of today's leading anti-wokes also having kind of new atheist roots. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And I think you're, you're highlighting the kind of derogatory aspect of it is really important. And this brings me back to the comment that I wanted to make before I got sidetracked into us talking about the definition <laughs> of religion, which was, you know, I really like the, the account that you gave about the way that religious beliefs arise is because it's mixed. And I feel like a lot of times when we have these conversations, there's this like pit and pedestal thing going on where we either have to denigrate religious beliefs as being you know, irrational to the point of pathological, or they have to be treated as the salvation of humanity or something like they brought about, you know, social justice and all change or like, you know, so I think it's, it's useful to sort of see that there, there could be this complexity. I wonder, do you worry about sort of the way that you see discussions of religion in, especially pop Evo psych, as leaning a little too much one way or the other? Like, my, my, like, do they lean too much towards pathologizing religion? Do you and do you worry about that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be scientifically problematic anytime you get this kind of like, oh, religion must be all bad or all good. I, I, So religions are super complex and diverse phenomena. Um, They might have some shared cultural histories, but the notion that we'll be able to answer whether they're kind of capital G good or capital G bad is silly. That's not what science can do. And that's religions Mm -hmm. aren't kind of a coherent enough group for us to attempt that. Um, Yeah, what I see in some of the pop 
Ev psych work, they don't touch, a, at least uh, from the bits I read, they don't touch religion on it a ton other than to kind of snidely say like, oh, well, you know, we could evolve to believe in all sorts of stupid, irrational things. Take, for mm -hmm. example, religion. Um, now, in terms of whether religion's good or bad, I think they've kind of made some pre-commitments, uh, some of these writers, that religion is bad, and they have one specific notion of kind of how evolution could work, and they try to reconcile those two. Um, whereas my mm -hmm. approach for uh, investigating religion scientifically is I'll start out pretty value-free and say, I just want to understand how religions work. I'm not going to try to figure out if they're good or bad. Um, mm -hmm. And then two, I mean, I'm kind of a interdisciplinary sort. I don't have strong ties to ev psych or cultural evolution or any of these other kind of sub-disciplines. Instead, I try to draw upon all the tools that they all have. Um, and so that'll mean like when I was kind of giving the two separate stages where we have as a byproduct, we can imagine supernatural agents and then due to our cultural learning stuff, that's how we believe in some. That's mm -hmm. kind of taking one ev psych idea and one cultural evolution idea and saying, let's stick these together, which I think historically these sub-disciplines don't always get along. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's hard for people to say, well, I'm going to take this idea from my sub-discipline and then our rival sub-discipline, I'm just going to not pay attention to what they say. And I think this mm -hmm. is evident, for instance, if you look at sort of the Dawkins approach to religion is he's totally cool with the kind of theory of mind byproduct account. But he'll never talk about the good cultural evolutionary work that's been coming out that some types of religious beliefs seem to have been kind of mobilizers for cooperation within groups. Mm -hmm. And I've never seen him endorsing that. And you see some other kind of of the new atheist bent uh, being resistant to that type of science. I think it's because the, the science mm -hmm. is saying some religions have been good for some things. And I think for the new atheist set, that's too charitable to religion to even entertain the possibility that religions mm -hmm. have spread across the globe because they're good at getting some types of shit done. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's like a good, I think that's fair. <laughs> yeah, I think you're yeah. right. I think there is a lot of anxiety. I mean, so yeah, so I guess how would you, you know, how would you respond? Because I think this is a very common mindset in the atheist community to say, and this is like, this is a generous mindset, I think is to say, well, look, um, we'll acknowledge that religion was adaptive at various points in human history, that like it did have this in-group benefit at these various points, but that in the modern world, it is maladaptive and should be kind of slowly weeded out in the less, you know, the least totalitarian way possible. Um, how do you feel about that kind of critique of religion and religious practice? Um, yeah, that critique is an interesting one. Um, yeah, my own view, I'm an atheist, but I also study this stuff. So mm -hmm. I think it starts with the premise that religion is necessarily bad and something we should get rid of. Um, so first I'd say, well, what's your evidence for that? So a lot of religious practices are, I would say, pretty objectively harmful. So let's mm -hmm. do away with those practices. A lot mm -hmm. of them are pretty neutral in kind of a moral sense, like, if people want their, you know, if people get together one day a week and sing a song together and uh, engage in kind of communion with their their fellow humankind, 
great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to take that away from anyone. Um, and if they're mm-hmm. singing songs about something I don't believe in, like, I don't care. I don't believe in that thing. Why should I care one way or the other? Um, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say if, to the question of whether we could say, well, religions might have served a purpose in kind of helping us scale up cooperation, but now currently don't. Um, mm-hmm. I think think there's like decent evidence for that in some cases. So we'll see, for instance, uh, atheism is on the rise and fairly high in, say, Western Europe and Scandinavia. And one of our best uh, scientific accounts for how that happened is that these societies kind of developed good, strong, secular institutions. Um, Uh We have, you don't have to worry about God's judgment because we have fair and impartial police and courts. Uh, Mm -hmm. We have a good social safety net. So if people fall on hard times, they're not totally screwed. Uh, We have good public education systems. So you build all these institutions and it, Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, just it seems to be kind of how people work. People are less motivated by religion in situations where there's stability and security and safety. Uh, So it Mm -hmm. looks like in those countries, we've seen just kind of the, the, the appetite for religion has faded away over a couple of generations. So you see a generation of people who privately believe, but they stopped going to church. And then you have a generation of people who grow up not seeing these religious displays. They're not seeing the credibility enhancing displays favoring religion. And they just kind of organically develop as atheists. So Mm -hmm. a lot of Western Europe looks like we have organically developed secular societies, somewhat built on the success and stability of these institutions, that may have required some uh, religious leverage to kind of ratchet up the levels of cooperation that it takes to develop those institutions. Um, So to the kind of new atheists who want to say, well, religion doesn't serve a purpose now, um, I would say, like, fine, just give it some time. We'll see the influence uh, fade Mm -hmm. away, as we've seen in Western Europe and Scandinavia. It looks like the U.S. is just kind of like 40 or 50 years behind the curve. But the data for the kind of decline of religious participation and belief, uh, it's the same exact curve. It's just shifted by a couple of decades. Mm -hmm. Um, So if people want to say religion will fade away or we don't need religion anywhere or anymore, I'd say like, fine, just let it fade away. So if what you're saying there is accurate, would it be fair that I could make an argument that would probably piss off certain new atheists to say, look, if you really want to see atheism spread across the world, you should be spending all of your time doing the kind of social justice work that involves creating those robustly respected secular institutions, you know, criminal justice reform and things like that, that maybe are the reason that for in America, for example, people haven't shifted away from religion as much because there is not this sort of wellspring of of trust in the social safety net or in things like that um you know so that like rather than spending all of your time bashing the religious if you're spending all of your time you know demanding you know greater equity or equality in the world or something like that that you could see better long-term results in terms of your goal of of reducing religious belief uh, yeah, I suppose that argument um, would be controversial among that set, but I think there's solid evidence behind it that if mm-hmm. you really want to see your religion lose influence in the world, then try to create 
the social conditions where religion, we've seen it naturally fade away elsewhere. And that's mm -hmm. uh, reduce inequality, build strong and reliable uh, secular safety nets. So we kind of have the template for what mm -hmm. makes religion fade away. So if you want to combat religion, um, it's pretty pointless to try to engage people in debate to try to convince them not to be religious. Instead, just create societal level conditions where uh, religion tends to naturally fade away. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. All right. So I want to shift gears here a little bit um, to the the work related to this, but like the work that you had done that I specifically ended up citing in this paper that I'm, I'm working on about um, atheists and non-believers as marginalized communities, um, because you've done a fair bit of study into the like the empirical side of um, what I what I believe to be a fairly widespread stereotype that atheists are or non-believers, I should say, be more more general here are less likely to be moral in various ways can you say a little bit about your research into those particular beliefs towards non-believers yeah so i've had kind of a consistent line of research on people's perception of atheists really going back to i think it was my master's degree research in 07 or 08 um <clears throat> so around that time uh, one of these, it was like Gallup or Pew had one of these polls of would you vote for a well-qualified member of your own preferred political party if they happen to be whatever mm -hmm. group? And then you look for it, uh, kind of the percentage of people who say they'd vote for them is a crude index of just kind of how much you like or dislike different groups of people. Mm -hmm. And this one poll, I think it was at 07, uh, people were broadly supportive of an African-American candidate or a gay candidate or a Jewish candidate or even a Muslim candidate. Um, which considering this was like shortly after we went back into Iraq, uh, you'd expect, and there was kind of sky high overt anti-Muslim prejudice. Um, mm -hmm. But in this poll, the only group who couldn't get 50% support was atheists. So people say, no, I would not vote for an atheist candidate, even if they're well qualified and of my own political The, the party. only religious, and, uh, you mean, right? Because the, the, the socialists, yeah. I think, also didn't crack 50% in that one, I, I believe. Yeah, so socialists connection. always yeah. pop in, yeah, which is funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah so, so it was the yeah, only of saying. these kind of religious or cultural outgroups that couldn't get majority support. And mm -hmm. at the time, I just thought that was interesting. And I was curious about why people would have strong feelings about atheists, even though atheists don't really do much. Like they have no real collective or individual presence or power in the U.S. So it's Fair. just a weird group to have strong feelings about either way. Uh -huh. um, and at least coming at it from a social psychology perspective, they didn't fit the mold for groups that would be a target of strong prejudice. So if you think about it in like intergroup conflict terms uh, here, you know, if I'm a member of one team and there's our rival team and mm -hmm. we're in conflict over some material resource, I'm going to come to become prejudiced against those people on the rival team. But it mm -hmm. seems like atheists don't kind of fit that coalitional mold. Um, there's not a real coherent presence for atheists. So it didn't seem to be this in-group, out-group thing driving it. Mm -hmm. um, so we started asking, well, what other reasons might there be for people to have super strong negative perceptions of atheists? Mm -hmm. um, and eventually what we hit on is taking some ideas um, from evolutionary psychology about how prejudices form um, mm -hmm. and combining it with some cultural evolutionary work on what religion was doing. And so the story somewhat goes as follows. So some ev psych work from like Steve Newberg, Mark Schaller, and others, um, 
they've argued that you know social psychology talks about what predicts prejudice for decades and that that's the wrong question to be asking because it's lumping a lot of stuff together and calling it all prejudice as if that's a singular phenomenon mm-hmm. and instead uh they said well no let's step back and look at distinct prejudices against different outgroups so they said maybe different groups of people are perceived to pose different kinds of adaptive threats and we mm-hmm. then have kind of nuanced specific reactions to different groups of people uh so some of the kind of foundational papers on this approach they'd say well it looks to be the case that for say the typical white undergraduate student who shows up in a psychology study um they view Mm -hmm. african-americans and especially african-american men as a potential threat to uh kind of safety uh and so they react with fear so we have a fear-based response uh, mm-hmm. for that particular type of, of prejudice. Whereas if you look at these kind of white undergrads' attitudes towards, say, gay men, um, there they view it as more of kind of a health pathogen-related threat and experience disgust instead of mm-hmm. anger or fear. Um, so we thought, well, what what could atheists be tripping as a perceived threat? Um, right. And for that, we looked to sort of emerging cultural evolutionary work on religion that it seems like some types of religious beliefs uh, seem to be good for within group cooperation. And the idea here is that if I believe in a God who's morally concerned about my behavior, I'm going to check some of my worst impulses um, Uh and be more cooperative with those around me, not rob, not steal, not lie, all that, just because I don't want to incur God's wrath. Um, Now, if I'm from one of these groups where kind of belief in a god is part and parcel of morality Uh then atheists they're moral wild cards what's keeping them honest um so we thought then that well maybe what's driving negative perceptions of atheists is not anger it's not fear in kind of a physical safety sense it's not this pathogen related disgust response instead it just seems to be about this moral distrust Uh Um, so these people there's nothing keeping them honest uh, so mm-hmm. I think atheists are more likely to engage in all sorts of immoral behavior just because they're kind of like broad spectrum, uninhibited folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- I think that makes sense as the way that it arises. And I think that's what you see a lot in, in the way that folks react. And I'm curious, do you, have you seen any empirical evidence at all to back up the idea that there is any sort of consistent difference in levels of moral behavior between believers and non-believers. Yeah, it's funny. Um, In my, I think it was my PhD defense, one of my external examiners asked a similar question. He said, well, isn't it in a sense rational to distrust atheists? Because, mm-hmm. you know, if somebody <laughs> believes in God and there's a sack of money sitting on the sidewalk, they might not mm-hmm. take the money because they're worried about the cops arresting them or they wouldn't want to let their mother down. But they also right. think that God might smite them if they take it. Whereas the atheist, like, then they just have the police and the mom that they're worried about. So they have one less reason to do the mm-hmm. right thing. So isn't mm-hmm. it kind of rational? And it's an interesting question. Um, but in terms of the question of whether there's evidence that, uh, say, religious folks actually more are more moral and cooperative. And on that front, the evidence is kind of mixed and depends on how you ask the question. Mm-hmm. But if there's any signal to be found amongst the noise, it's way smaller 
in magnitude than the evidence of distrust for atheists. Um, mm-hmm. So there's some work, uh, if you look at like experimental economic games as a measure of kind of cooperative intent and internalized fairness norms, where, uh, and even here the evidence is a bit mixed, but religious people, if you remind them of their religious norms, they get more cooperative. Uh, and that doesn't seem to work for atheists, but at baseline, so absent that religious reminder, uh, religious folks and atheists within the same kind of culture and country don't look all that different from each other on that type of a measure. Mm -hmm. Um, On the other hand, there's work, if you look at these same uh, experimental economic games across cultures, it looks like historic exposure to say big world religions at the cultural level that predicts everyone in that culture being a bit more pro-social. So it Mm -hmm. seems like we could have religion acting at the kind of culture by culture level to ramp up cooperation, but within groups, um, at least my read on the literature is there's not great evidence showing that say religious people are just more trustworthy and more moral than atheists. Uh Um, No, it seems like, There's something we want to clarify here, right, that cooperative behavior and moral behavior are not necessarily the same thing, right? I think a lot of people, when they hear cooperative, they think, or hear pro-social, they have a positive connotation to it. Like it means, you know, these people are more friendly and charitable to their neighbors or something, which it might mean, right? But it could also be the kind of pro-social behavior that makes everyone into Nazis, right? It's sort of a matter of luck about like, is this pro-social behavior being connected to genuinely moral communal standards, for example. Um, For sure, definitely a worthwhile clarification where, you know, depending on norms of my group, me strapping a bomb to my chest and blowing myself up in a crowded place to kill lots of my group's enemies is the most pro-social thing I could do. Uh, Not necessarily moral. Um, Right. So yeah, pro-social is basically just like, are you willing to act on behalf of others? Um, Right. Depending on what your communal cause is, that's good Mm -hmm. or bad. Right. And I think this is is important because it's also very similar to my feelings about the like belief in an afterlife improves people's behavior. It seems to me, right, not necessarily the case that it makes people more moral. It seems like it just messes with their behavior in a bunch of ways. But one of them might be, like you say, it increases pro-social or communal um you know willingness to commit to these kind of uh communal sacrifices or something like that um but again you know that willingness to commit to this kind of communal sacrifices can be fairly easily it seems turned towards immoral behavior as well as moral behavior for sure um yeah i think i mean one way i tend to view religions is that they're kind of really good at norm compliance. So they'll get people to do stuff consistent with the norms of the group. Um, Unless it's trying to to use contraception, in which case it seems like not so much. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, so we can say that it seems like psychologically and also through processes of cultural evolution, it seems like a lot of religions are really good at getting people to do stuff. Now, the moral content of stuff could go in any which direction. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, that that's it's just an important, I think, because I do feel like a lot of the pro-religion people just go as far as arguing that it improves pro-social behavior and leave it implicit that that means that it makes the world a better place because 
you know, we're communal animals. And so we must be doing like the good kinds of pro-social behavior or something like that. Um, so let's go back to the, the stereotype thing for a second, because, you know, something that I argue in my paper um, that gets a little bit more controversial is that um, atheists and non-believers are negatively impacted by this kind of widespread um, stereotype threat uh, with regard to their, their moral status. So like, for example, I'm curious to ask, do you think it's likely that there will be an openly atheist president in the near future? Like, let's say, you know, five election cycles, the next 20 years or so. And, and like, if your answer there is maybe not, is that like a significant harm to living atheist individuals right now? Um. So for the, I guess, concrete projection, I think the probability of an atheist president within the next openly atheist president within the next 20 years is about zero. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that's happening anytime soon. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's because, especially in the U S just these pro religious norms are so entrenched and there's such a tight intuitive linkage in people's minds between religion and morality. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's bundled up with other, you know, for whatever historic or historical or social trends, politics has become increasingly tied up with religion to the point where, you know, the Democrats are kind of nominally the more secular party, but mm -hmm. their successful candidates still have to trot out about exactly how religious they are. And like Biden's right. a religious outlier because, oh my God, he's Catholic instead of, you know, mainstream Protestant. Um, mm -hmm. So I think there's just such a tight linkage in the U S between uh, in people's heads between religion and morality, and then historically between religion and politics that I don't think that's changing anytime soon. Mm -hmm. um, as for this, the kind of more interesting question is, is that bad for atheists? Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's pretty safe that for any group who's uh, kind of a target of prejudice and consistent negative attitudes is not mm -hmm. good for that group. It's, mm -hmm. it's no good being a minority group in a larger culture where kind of the majority group despises you for some reason. Mm -hmm. um, that's not great psychologically. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Would it help atheists if mm -hmm. there were an atheist president? It could be just for the sake of kind of normalizing atheism and having a positive exemplar um, that could help a lot. And I think also, aside from just having, you know, the one atheist in office, I think one of the biggest things that could help life for atheists in a place like the U.S. is just kind of publicizing accurate numbers about how many atheists there are. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's mm -hmm. a lot more atheists in a place like the U.S. than most of us realize. And most mm -hmm. people probably interact with atheists without having a clue that they're doing it. Um, and so it's easy for people's negative perceptions of atheists to persist. And it's easy for people to morally distrust atheists, so long as they don't realize how many atheists they are that they're interacting with, and it, it, it goes fine. Yeah, I actually think all of those things are tied together in really interesting ways. I sort of argue in my paper that you know, one major harm you see from stereotype threat is threat to authenticity, that like an individual will suppress authentic parts of their identity because they just want to get along with people around them or they don't want to or, or, you know, they want to have access to a job or something like that. They know realistically, if they're being honest, right, if they are open about their beliefs, they are likely to not get that job. Um, and then, you know, this compounds because 
um it seems to me that atheism as an identity is one where it's it's very easy to pass as it were right like you can't change your skin color quite as effectively as you can just say oh yeah i actually i believe in xyz or something like that um that doesn't mean that it doesn't come with a cost right it just means that it's very easy for people put in those tension situations to just choose the passing option and so you see i think a large number and this came up in like um american atheism did a really big study recently and found that like large numbers of atheists do hide their their sort of non-belief identities in a, in a variety of kinds of environments and then that sort of compounds the problem as you're saying because then like you know if we if we think that knowing someone who is of a particular identity is a major factor in reducing bias against group members of that identity then like it, the harder it is for people to just openly say they're atheists the harder it is for people to say oh well i know an atheist who's not wildly immoral and you get this kind of vicious cycle yeah exactly um it is kind of a vicious cycle that's why i'm cautiously optimistic for some of the initiatives like the openly secular campaign where there's trying to get people not necessarily to come out with an anti-religious new atheist message but just to say like here i'm so-and-so and guess mm -hmm. what? I'm not religious and it's not that big of a deal. I think that mm -hmm. has a lot more potential to improve uh, kind of the public perception of atheists than does any amount of kind of like internet chat room debate. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I see a big like paradox of progress concern here because like that Gallup poll that you referenced when it was originally started back in the day, the number for atheists was like 14%, right? It was like, a, it was even worse. So like it has gone up substantially. Um, but as you say, right, the odds of an actual openly atheist president doesn't feel like it has gone up um, substantially. And I wonder, do you worry about backsliding in America when it comes to the relationship between the religious and the non-religious as the numbers of non-religious increase primarily because of this continued belief of this continued connecting of the idea like if you're non-believer then you're less moral and society is becoming less moral as it progresses and that's because of this secularization and so you could like Ross Douthat saying we have to go back to religion or something like that um, do you worry that we're going to see you know, retrenchment and heightened tension rather than continued sort of slow progress on the secularization front? Um, I could see a couple of different possible outcomes. So I'd kind of say, even if there's kind of a gradual slide towards higher numbers of non-believers in the US, we'll probably still see pockets of retrenchment. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, it's something you see with, uh, for instance, with racism in the US, as you have uh, kind of slow advances in civil rights um, mm -hmm. or you see the U.S. becoming a majority minority country uh, kind of on the horizon um, you do see backlash you see a lot of backlash where any sort of advance in progress on racial terms is met with you know you can look back uh, at sort of the birth of the clan or mm -hmm. what it's morphed into nowadays with all these other groups pushing back. You could have kind of the whole Trump year as sort of uh, the Trump years as, uh, you know, backlash against a black president. Um, mm -hmm. So you will have these patterns where those who have been used to living comfortably as the majority uh, are going to fight their potential to lose that status. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of how it might play out with religion, it's it's interesting because if you look at kind of today's most highly secular countries, 
again in Europe, um, there was some push and pull with religion, but we didn't see anything quite like, uh, say, whites' racial backlash against black people in the U.S. uh, through civil Mm -hmm. rights through today. So that would lead me to have some cautious optimism that progress doesn't necessarily have to be met with violent resistance. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm not sure if I had to kind of predict what the religious landscape of the U.S. would look like in 50 years. It's a tough one. Um, Mm -hmm. It does look like the numbers of non-religious people are going up quickly, and especially younger generations today uh, are both more likely to be atheists. And we have some data where we're looking at indirect measurement of how many atheists there are, just to get around Mm -hmm. the fact that a lot of people won't identify themselves as atheists. So we Mm -hmm. see that younger generations, there are more atheists, and they're more comfortable saying that they're atheists. Um, Mm -hmm. So that kind of hints that maybe this transition could be a bit smoother uh, than it has mm-hmm. been with some other transitions. Um, mm-hmm. That's a good point. But yeah. Yeah. Um, so on the, um, well, we can, uh, one more thing in here and then we'll get on to uh, the enlightening round. Um, the, on the sort of evolution of these arguments, right? I do think a lot of, sort of rank and file religious individuals still harbor some of this kind of stereotype about atheists. I'm also curious if you would agree. I think there's been a kind of evolution amongst academic theologians, um, folks like William Lane Craig, away from the claim, the sort of psych claim that atheists can't act morally because we see, I think, enough evidence in the world of them doing so that that's a pretty hard claim to stick at this point. They've evolved to this kind of meta-ethical, you know, yes, they can act ethically, but it's irrational and they have no, like, sufficient justification for doing so without a, without a godlike moral foundation. Um, do you see that as essentially a kind of, you know, sophisticated... Um, reproducing of the atheist immoral atheist in just kind of a different format um and that it has the same kind of it could have the same kind of impact in terms of how they're treated yeah i mean i could see that having the same it's just kind of pushing the logic back one step instead of saying Mm -hmm. well atheists can't do moral stuff without worrying about god punishing them for not doing it now it's just that they have no consistent meta-ethical basis for doing so Mm -hmm. um I guess my response to that is they they might be overestimating the link between people's sophisticated <laughs> meta-ethics and any behavior that we would ever care about measuring. I, I firmly disagree. I think we can all, <laughs> obviously, there's a direct one-to-one correlation there, and I, I reject your implication that meta-ethics has no influence on <laughs> But yeah, I mean, there is yeah, sort of an implicit of argument... idea there. Like, right there the implicit yeah. idea is if you get rid of that meta-ethical foundation, then you're going to start undermining all the laws that were based on it. You're going to take away people's rights or something like you're going to, it, it does it slide right back into, and then you're going to act immorally. It seems like, cause you've lost that foundation. Yeah, exactly. Like it feels like at some point they still need the rubber to meet the road on mm-hmm, like, would mm-hmm. you trust an atheist to do something? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I suspect that they would say no and might couch it in meta ethical terms, but I, I think this is their kind of gut level distrust of atheists leading them to come up with more contrived arguments rather than the other way around. 
Yeah, I'm sympathetic to that as well. Um, okay, so one question I'd like to ask right at the end of things for folks who want to do a little bit more research into this subject, like, do you have particular books or folks that you would recommend who don't sort of oversimplify, you know, the psychology of religion or things like that, that um, that would also still be like accessible to, to folks who don't have quite as much background? Sure. Uh, so good accessible entry points. Um, so one of the books that I read that kind of got me interested in doing this work in the first place is uh, Religion Explained by Pascal Boyer. That's a really kind of accessible introduction to sort of the cognitive science of religion, uh, religion as a cognitive byproduct approach. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that approach we've seen, you know, in the nearly 20 years since that book came out, we've seen that it's limited in a lot of ways. But I think that would be a good kind of first pass for how to think about religion through a scientific lens. Mm -hmm. um, for a more kind of up-to-date look at how religions work, uh, my old advisor, Aranur and Zion, has a book called Big Gods. Um, and here he's really pushing the argument that certain types of religious beliefs and practices kind of helped ratchet up cooperation uh, mm -hmm. in human groups. Um, and then I guess as a good theoretical backdrop for that one, Henrik's Secret of Our Success is really good just at looking at how cultural evolution works. Because mm -hmm. um, I think the more, yeah, through grad school through today, the more I think about things, the more I think like religion makes no sense unless mm -hmm. you're taking into account how cultural evolution works in general. Um, well, you'll, so you'll those three would point. give you a pretty good set. You'll always get points on this show for Secret of Our Success, though. The Big Gods one, it sounds like, would pair really well with Terry Pratchett's Small Gods. I feel like that would be a, a That fun, would be fun. Yeah, that would contrast. work. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's quite insightful about the way religion works a lot of the time. Um, oh, absolutely. Okay, great. So that this has been fun, but now, unfortunately, I have to torture you. Um, so this right. is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. I'm going to, for folks who are not familiar, give you a series of things. You are going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your only options. You can't hedge. You don't get to define what real means. It's just real or not real. Do you understand? All right. You I ready? got it. Just straight from the gut. Unfiltered okay. intuition. Exactly. Right. So first of all, just to prime the pump here, is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. Let's find out what's real. The external world, real or not real? Real. Colors, real or not real? Mm, real. Phenomenal consciousness? Not real. Free will? Uh, not real. Selves or persons? Real. Genders? Uh, real. Races? Not real. Species? Eh, real-ish. Puzzly <laughs> real. Real, okay. Morality? Eh, not real. Rights? Real. Knowledge? Um, real. God or gods? Not real. Society? Real. Money? Uh, real. Numbers? Real. The real Fiction ones, at least. Uh -huh. Fictional characters? Oh, real. 
holes, like a hole in the ground. Real. Chairs. Real. Sandwiches. Oh, definitely real. <laughs> Science. Real. Natural laws. Real. Beauty. Real. Love. Real. Causality. Real. And finally, time. Real. All right. You survived. How do you feel? Uh, that was good. I feel like that was probably a completely inconsistent mess of philosophical <laughs> lay opinions. <laughs> you have you have a very uh, robust ontology, let me say. You've got quite a lot of real things in there. <laughs> Just button up against each other. Yeah, that's that's fair. You know, I I, I accept that. Um, so great. This has been a lot of fun. Will I really appreciate it? Um, do you want to let folks know where they can find you on like Twitter and find your work and stuff before we wrap up? Uh, sure. I'm on Twitter. I believe I'm at W Gervais. Um, I've got a website is willgervais.com and I update it like once a year when we have to turn in our annual reports. Um, it's fair. I think I'm on the Brunel webpage somewhere. Uh, they, for some reason, had me listed as a behavioral geneticist, which I'm not and never have been, but mm. that's cool. It sounds fancy. Stealing um, some valor there. That's fine. Yeah. And shoot me an email if you got questions. Um, you can find me on either the website or the Brunel one. I'm around. Great. Well, thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks a lot. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. As always, I'd like to thank our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Cormot Orkman, the Barbarian, or Orkman on Twitch, excuse me, CampQuest.org, 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 and all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. I also want to give a special shout out to longtime friend of the show and extremely moral non-believer Alex Arnett, who did something very super erogatory recently. Um, even though he claims he does not yet fully believe in moral truths as objectively real, I think we can still give him credit for this. Um, hope you're doing well, Alex. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, whatever else you believe, remember, you are the void. And the void is you. Thank you.